0: All right, well, welcome back. We are in week two of our study through the book of Romans. And if this is not a welcome back, if you're finding us for the very first time, uh, I'm glad you're here. I think that there's a lot for you to gather from what we're going to talk about today. But after we're done, I would encourage you to go back and watch week one because we're spending five weeks in this book of Romans looking at the gift of salvation that we've been given. And really, as we go from week to week, what we're going to talk about builds off of the week before. So the stuff that we're going to deal with today, stuff we're going to address today, really, in a lot of ways, is going to build off of what we saw last week when we spent some time working through and understanding our need for salvation. And so if you weren't here, there's no need to hop off now and to go back and watch it immediately. You can do that afterwards. But let me give you like a quick rundown of what we talked about last week and our need for salvation. We started our journey in the book of Romans looking at the idea of sin, and we saw a few things. Number one, we saw that sin has corrupted us all. Whether you are a religious person or an irreligious person, whether you're a church person or not a church person, we have all been corrupted by sin. We all fall short of God's perfect standard. And because of that, that sin has also separated us from God and has left us all under the full weight of his judgment. And sometimes that doesn't seem fair because we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions and only judge others by their actions. But the truth is, is that God looks at all of our actions and we have all actively sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And that has put us under his wrath and judgment. And so because of that, the big Big idea the big takeaway from last week is that our sin has left us in need of a savior and that's a huge thing because when we talk about sin we like to push it back we like to push it off we like to diminish it but the truth is unless we understand our sin we'll never understand our need for a savior. Unless we understand our sin, we'll never understand the gift of salvation that we've been offered. And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to continue that idea of our need for a savior. And and we're going to jump back in at another very familiar verse in the book of Romans, a verse that if you grew up in church or even around church, chances are you've heard this verse before. It's a part of what is widely known as the Romans road, these popular verses through the book. And we're going to look this morning at Romans chapter 5, verse number 8. And this is what Paul writes. He says, This He says, But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So so last week we saw we're all sinners, we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. But here Paul says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, we are all sinners. Yes, religious people sin. Yes, irreligious people sin. Yes, church people need a savior. Yes, not church people need a savior. But the good news is that even though we are sinners, Jesus has died for us while we are still sinners. And I'm betting you've heard that before. That phrase, Jesus died for us on the cross, Jesus died for sinners, Probably not a new thing to you. It's something that you've heard before. It's something that you're familiar with. So, my question to you, as we kind of dig into this this morning, is what does that mean? When we say that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, what does that mean? And more importantly, not just what does it mean, why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus died for us on the cross? Why did Jesus have to die for us on the cross? Why is that such a big deal? Why is that something that we stake so much on? Well, I think to understand that, just like we did last week, we have to back up and look at how Paul builds to that point in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where he makes that statement. Just like last week, we went back to chapter 1 and came all the way to verse 23, this week we need to go all the way back, or maybe not all the way back to the beginning, but all the way back to where we ended last week to make sense of what Paul's saying here in chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible still open, go back with me to where we ended last week last week, and that's Romans chapter 3, verse number 21. What we're going to read is a paragraph here in the middle of chapter 3, part of which we read last week, that to me is maybe the clearest and most concise explanation of the gospel in the book of Romans. Look at what Paul writes, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There it is, but it doesn't stop there, it keeps going. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, that is a massively deep paragraph. In that one paragraph, I believe that Paul plums the depths of the gospel and gives us a concise statement about what it is we believe about salvation. But when you read it, it's so dense that it can be a little hard to understand. We, we picked up on what was familiar last week, right? Romans 3.23, all of sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but really that one verse is in a much broader paragraph that we may need to step back to understand. And understanding some of the language that Paul uses here, language that we don't use often, will under, help us understand how he explains the gospel to us here. And I think one of those words that Paul uses that we don't use that often, but you You've got to understand here in this paragraph is the word righteousness. Now, we mentioned this a little bit last week, that the, the question you have to ask is not whether you're religious or irreligious, not whether you're a church person or not a church person, The question you have to answer is, are you righteous? And what we mean by are you righteous is, do you have a right standing before God? Are you blameless before God? That's what we talked about righteous last week, but here in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 and following, Paul's not talking about your righteousness, he's talking about God's righteousness. So, what does that mean? What does it mean when we talk about God's righteousness? Well, I think a way to understand God's righteousness is like this God has a righteousness, uh, an uprightness, a blamelessness that is both passive and active. Well, what do I mean by that? God's righteousness is passive. In the fact that by his nature, he is holy and perfect. By his nature, at the core of his being, God himself is perfect. If he were not, he would not be God. God himself is holy. God himself is just. God himself is fully good. He is righteous. So that holy nature is part of God's righteousness, but the active side of God's righteousness is that he acts righteously in his faithfulness to his promises. God acts righteously in that he has always kept his word. He has always remained true to his promises and true to himself. Now, that statement may not like move your needle a whole lot, but it is a huge tension That we have to deal with so so think about it like this based on what we talked about last week how can god be both faithful to his holy character and faithful to his sinful people how can god be righteous in his character and yet righteous in his faithfulness to us And that is what Paul's answering here in this paragraph. And he uses a word or a phrase at the end of the paragraph in verse 26 when he says that God is, uh, God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. See, that one sentence helps us answer the question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins? What do we mean that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? What Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 3, verse 26 is something that you absolutely must understand. That the gospel upholds God's righteousness on both ends. Number one, the gospel upholds God's righteousness because God punishes sin. As a holy and perfect God in his character and nature, God must punish sin. And the gospel is that God does punish sin, but he is faithful to his people in that he takes the punishment in himself. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. That's what we mean when we said that Jesus died on the cross for our sins while we were still sinners because God put Jesus forth, Paul says. God sent Jesus to the cross so that he could be righteous in judging sin and declare righteous all of those who would put their faith in Jesus as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. He is the just and the justifier. He is righteous and he declares righteous. That is the beauty of the gospel, that God could do both, that God could be both in this wonderful gift of salvation. But if you're following along, in the CSB, which is a translation that we preach out of here at the Orchard, and you follow along on You Version, you'll notice that the words you read in You Version are different than the words that I read out of my hard copy of the Bible. And that's because the CSB had an update in 2020 where it changed the words declare righteous and be righteous to the word just and justifier. Matter of fact, we are gonna see that as we continue to look at scriptures today that the CSB has updated the word declare righteous to be justified. And, And that's fine. They mean the very same thing. Matter of fact, when we talk about being justified by faith, being justified before God, what we are talking about is that we are declared righteous by a righteous God. That's what the good news of the gospel is, is that because Jesus took the punishment that our sin deserved, now you and I, through our faith in him, can be declared righteous before God. You know, we said this last week, are you righteous? Well, we would all admit, based on our conversation last week, that we're not. We've all fallen short. We've all messed up. We've all broken things. We've all sinned. So no, we're not righteous. But the gospel says, through Jesus' death on the cross, that we can be declared righteous. That when God looks at us, he says, you are forgiven. When God looks at us, he says, you're not guilty anymore, now you're innocent. That's what it means to be justified, that we have a right standing before God. But again, the question has to be asked. Well then, if we can be declared righteous, if we can be justified before God, if that's the essence of the gospel, then how does that happen? Well, let's keep reading. Skip over to chapter 4, verse number 1, because Paul gives us a clear example of where and when this being declared righteous happened, and specifically how it happened. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, what then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the faith, is found? So, so h- hold on, real quick. Who is Abraham? Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham, when he met God, was named Abram. And God came to him and said, Abram, I want you to follow me. I'm going to take you to a land that you've never seen, a place your foot has never tread upon. I'm going to give you the land, and I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And so in a lot of ways, Abraham is the father of our faith. Even if we are not Jewish, as the father of many nations and all of those who would come out of Judaism into Christianity, Abraham is the father of faith. So Paul's saying, hey, if you want an example of how you can be declared righteous, just look at Abraham. Look at verse 2. It says, if Abraham was justified, there's our word, justified, declared righteous, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? And here's the key. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him, who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited For righteousness. So Paul uses Abraham to make a massive point that we have to get. Abraham was declared righteous. Abraham was justified before God, not because of his obedience. Was Abraham obedient to God? Absolutely at least most of the time. Go back and read his story. Maybe the biggest act of obedience that Abraham uh, ever showed us was when he was willing to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, believing that God would raise Isaac from the dead. But even in that willing obedience to sacrifice his son, we have a glimpse that it's not the obedience that's at the core, it's the faith. He was willing to be obedient in sacrificing his son because he had faith in God that God would raise him from the dead. And so Paul goes on to say, yes, Abraham was obedient, but it was not his obedience that made him righteous before God. It was not his obedience that God saw and therefore God declared him righteous. It was his faith. It was his trust in God, who God is, and his faith that God would keep his word. This is a massive point we can't miss. That it is not our works, not our effort, not our obedience that makes us righteous in the eyes of God. It is our faith and our faith alone. Faith alone is what is credited, Paul says, to us as righteousness. But that's a unique way of putting it, right? What does it mean to be credited righteousness? If you were to look at that phrase there in just verses one through five, it pops up a lot of times and it's gonna pop up even more. That word credited is used 11 times in chapter four and it's a word that's really a banking term. It means to be counted. It means to be put towards one's account. And I think that there's a great picture for us to stand here. When you and I are made righteous before God based on our faith, not our obedience, we, that, that, that is what salvation is, right? This gift of salvation. But I think that we have to understand that salvation is not a mortgage. Well, what do I mean by that? What I mean is I've heard it said, maybe you have too, that your house might not be your house, It's the bank's house. They're just letting you live there. Have you ever heard anybody say that to you? I know I've heard people say that before. And what they mean by that is, yes, that's your house. You're living in it. You put a down payment and you're making the payments. But that's just the point. You're making the payments. The bank owns the house, and as long as you continue to make the payments, the bank's going to continue to let you live there. But see, I think that's kind of how we think about salvation sometimes without meaning to. We think that, yes, Jesus' death on the cross is a down payment towards our house, and so now God's going to let us live in that house as long as we keep making our monthly payments of being obedient, reading our Bible, and going to church, and putting money in the offering plate. But the truth is, is that salvation is not a mortgage. What happens is, is through faith in Jesus Christ, as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin, we have been credited righteousness. That righteousness of God has been applied to our account. Putting it this way the house is paid in full. Your salvation is not a debt that you owe to God that you pay back through your obedience. Your salvation was purchased once for all forever by Jesus's death on your cross in your place. And when he declares us righteous, we are righteous once and for all. It's done. It's settled. Salvation is not alone. But I think more than that, we got to understand it's It's not a new idea. This isn't some new thing that happened with Jesus. This idea of righteousness credited through faith is something that we see all the way back to Abraham. This is how God has always worked, is being declared righteous on the basis of faith. And what are the results of that? What are the implications of that? Just skip over one more chapter to chapter five, verse one. Paul writes, he says, therefore, Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you and I are declared righteous, when you and I are justified by the death of Jesus on the cross in our place, by his victorious resurrection from the dead, when you and I are justified, when you and I are declared righteous, it brings peace with God. Now, be careful that you read that properly and that you heard me properly. It doesn't bring, just bring peace from God. It brings peace with God. W- what, do we, what do we mean by that? Let me, let me read you a quote from the author, Michael Bird. This is what he says. He says, "...believers are in the right with God, not as an, a reward for any accomplishment, but solely as a part of a divine reckoning of faith for righteousness." So that's what we've been talking about. And then he goes on to say, on that premise, Paul deduces that what follows from justification is the reality of peace. And this peace is not a subjective experience like a sensation of inner tranquility attained by sitting next to a quiet stream or the serenity one arrives at by engaging in meditation techniques. No, this peace is objective and it entails the end of hostilities between warring parties. Because God's enemies are justified, it means their enmities have been pacified Our Lord Jesus Christ is the source of our peace just as much as he is the source of our righteousness. Thus, God sends his son to make peace between parties formerly at war. Man, this... This gets at the heart of what we talked about last week, right? Our sin has left us separated from God and under the full weight of the wrath of God. But now, because we are credited righteousness, because we are justified by Jesus' action and not our own, Jesus brings us peace with God. We are no longer under his wrath. We are no longer under his judgment and more than that we are no longer separated from him we are now reconciled to him go back down to where we started today romans chapter 5 verse 8 but god proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners christ died for us how much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood will we be saved through him from wrath For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. That word reconciliation is so important because when Jesus purchased our peace on the cross by his blood, It wasn't just to make us neutral with God. It wasn't just so that God would call a ceasefire with us. But through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And now we have been reconciled with God and brought into his kingdom and made a part of his family. That's the gospel. That because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, you and I can be made right and declared right with God. Now look at that. And I see the mercy that God has shown us. Mercy and that God would spare us from the punishment that our sin rightly deserves. And then the grace that he would show us by not only not giving us what we did deserve, but by freely giving us His righteousness that we never deserved. That is the gospel. So where does that leave us? A couple of final thoughts for you today as we kind of begin to move into our next section next week. First of all, I think we need to remember that the righteousness we need is a righteousness that we can't earn. Right? We are sinners. We are separated from God. We're under the wrath of God. We can't earn and we don't have the righteousness that we need. Look at me. No matter how good you try to be, no matter how many times you walk through the doors of a church, no matter how often you pray, no matter how much money you give away generously, you will never earn your righteousness before God. Why? Because you are a sinner. The righteousness you need, you can't earn. Second thing, the righteousness that we need, Jesus has already earned in our place. You see, you and I, through our efforts, can never be good enough because we are sinners, and yet Jesus, because he was God in the flesh, was just as perfect as God himself, right? Jesus, God in the flesh, was by his nature holy. Jesus was by his nature perfect, and so he lived that perfect life, a life of righteousness. So the righteousness we need, we can't earn, The righteousness we need, Jesus has earned in our place as our substitute on our cross. So when Jesus went to the cross, this is where we started today. The reason Jesus died for us while we were still sinners is because he's the only one that could pay that price and walk out of the grave afterwards. He did it for us in our place as a substitute. And so now, the righteousness we need is a righteousness that we cannot earn. We can only receive through faith. That's the message of the gospel. You can't earn it. Jesus did what you couldn't, but now you have the choice to trust Him, believe on Him, and receive the righteousness of God from God, a righteousness that comes only through faith. That's it. That's the gospel. And maybe you've been trying your whole life to be a good person. Maybe you've been trying your whole life to live in such a way that you wouldn't have to go to hell when you die. And you're terrified that you might not have done enough or been enough or tried hard enough. And the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to. Jesus did. The only thing that you have to do is receive the gift that he has already purchased for you. Let him credit it to your account by faith. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and all of this is not new news to you. It's a good refresher, but it's not new. And so I would say this to you today. You might believe the gospel, but are you trusting the gospel? You may mentally assent, to everything that we've talked about today, but are you living in such a way that shows you trust what you claim to believe? See, here's the thing, and we're gonna dig into this more next week, but I wanna leave it with you. The hardest thing that you're ever gonna do as a follower of Jesus is to believe and to keep trusting in the message of the gospel, that the righteousness you need, you can't earn, that Jesus earned it for you, And that it's received only through faith. To keep living in that and trusting in that can be so difficult because we're drawn back to trying to do it ourselves. You may believe it, but do you trust it? Because here's the thing we're going to deal with next week. When you trust it, the implications for your life are staggering. So I hope you'll join us next week as we dig into that. But if you're here today and you need to talk to somebody, reach out. If you're here today and you're ready to receive the gift of salvation that Jesus has purchased for you, reach out. Let us know. We're here for you. Let me pray for you. God, thanks for the time that you've given us today. Thanks for the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that you have earned for us a righteousness we could not earn on our own and that you offer it freely to us through faith. So God, I pray this morning that you would bring dead hearts to life and that you would help us to place our trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.